All right, everybody. This is your boy, L. Jamal. This is officially never out of bounds. This is the place where your Second Amendment is protected as long as you got them facts. We're going to start the week off right. We got some college football to talk about. We're not going to talk about a whole lot of, you know, current events tonight. No word on the street tonight, but we're going to get to some foot college football. And I got a, a movie pre- uh, movie review waiting on y'all. So let's get right to it. Like I said, this weekend was the first weekend of college football this is my favorite time of the year we're gonna go over some of the scores over the weekend uh we got southern university uh they lost to tcu 55 to 7 oklahoma was able to beat up on florida atlantic uh, 63 to 14 we got the cupcake games in the first couple of weeks so Bear with it, y'all. Uh, Maryland be, uh, got the upset against uh, Texas, 34-29. Good looking on the Terrapins. I wasn't expecting it. I thought Texas would be a little bit better. But with that being said, go Terps. Uh, Ohio State beat Oregon State, thrashed them 77-31 with about an hour rain delay. So it looks like even without Urban Meyer for the next couple of weeks, Ohio State is still firing on all cylinders, y'all. So look out for them. Clemson was able to beat up on Furman. Uh, Clemson, uh, sorry, 48-7. Uh, again, Clemson, you know, they played one of those cupcakes the first couple of weeks. That's what the powerhouses are going to do uh, for the next, like I said, at least for the next week or so until conference play starts. But I'm going to talk about one of the more interesting games real quick, Appalachian State versus Penn State. Now, we all knew Penn State was the top 10 team. I believe they're ranked number six, I believe, in the nation. Uh, it took them until overtime to take out Appalachian State. They won, uh, They won though, Michigan State did, 45-38. to 38. Now, in terms of stats and everything, um, like I said, Penn State could have lost the game. They gave up 28 points in the fourth quarter, and like I said, if it wasn't for that last-minute touchdown, uh, they would they would have got knocked off again by Appalachian State. And this is not the first time that Appalachian State would have knocked off a, a big time Big Ten school. So uh, just just a big up to Appalachian State for even staying in that game. Uh, again, back to the stats. As far as Penn State goes, passing the ball, Trace McSorley, of course, led the way. He went 21 of 36, 230 yards, and he got a touchdown. In terms of running the ball, Michael Sanders read, led the way, 91 yards and two TDs. Trace McSorley also had 53 yards and two TDs as well. So look out for Trace McSorley. Like I said a couple days ago, he is an All-American candidate. So look to be involved in a lot of what Penn State does this year. And he's going to be pretty much the reason why they're going to be successful. Uh, Also, Ricky Slade ran for a touchdown for them as well. And in terms of receiving, K.J. Hamler led the way with four recoveries and 68 yards and also a touchdown. And defensively, Amani Arurare, he led the way with seven touchdowns, I'm sorry, seven tackles, excuse me, and an interception. So like I said, for them, for Penn State, you know, at least in terms of offense, we know they can keep up. Uh, defensively, it looks like they got a, a lot of questions in terms of Appalachian State's and uh, Appalachian State and their stats. Zach Thomas led the way in passing, twenty-five or thirty-eight, two hundred and seventy yards, and he also had two touchdowns. So that was pretty much their player of the game. Uh, they, you know, like I said, they couldn't get the job done, but they scored all over the field, all, all on Penn State. So it wasn't a good a good game by Penn State you know, for any, um, you know, 
on any standard. So definitely uh, something to question. I would definitely look into that. I mean, I know, you know, it's the first week. A lot of people, you know, oh, don't trip so hard. You know, they got a whole season. But mm-mm, Penn State, ah, already you coming out the gate looking a little bit sluggish on defense for me. That's not good. That's not good. But anyways, let's get back to these scores here. Uh, West Virginia was able to beat up on Tennessee 40 to 14. Another uh, another one of the big time prime uh, prime time games we had on Saturday was uh, Washington Auburn. Uh, Washington came in the game number six in the nation. Auburn came in at number nine. And of course, I'm not, I wasn't surprised. They were my favorite to win the game. Auburn was able to to steal it uh, pretty much 21 to 16. In terms of stats, Jason Stidham, uh, Jason Stidham, Auburn's quarterback, led the way 20 of 36, pa- uh, 20 of 36, uh, 273 yards and a touchdown. Cam Martin also ran for 88 yards. And Jatavius Whitlow, he only ran for about 30 something yards, but he was able to get the game winning touchdown in the fourth quarter, so that's important. In terms of receiving, Ryan Davis led the way with seven, uh, seven catches and 52 yards. And also, in terms of uh, what Washington was able, oh, also uh, before I before I get to Washington, Auburn's defense definitely came to play. They had five sacks, and even from the the, the jump from the first quarter, I was able to. That was the the one game that I was able to really able to analyze from beginning to end. No highlights or nothing like that. But Auburn's defense definitely came to play, uh, especially on the defensive line. They were pretty fast. They really get a lot of tackles behind the line of scrimmage. Pin watching it back. And one thing about football that's important on the college or the pro level is field position. And uh Auburn won that won that battle in spades. Now in terms of Washington and their stats, Jake Browning had won 18 to 32, 296 yards and a touchdown. Miles Gaskin led the way in rushing 75 yards, but no touchdowns. And Aaron Fuller had seven catches and 135 yards, but Quentin Pounds was able to get on the board in terms of the passing game for Washington. So uh, again, uh, not a great game for them. Uh, Washington offensively, I was a little bit surprised. Uh, Gaskin, you know, Auburn's defense did get in, uh, sorry, Browning's face a lot during the game. And that led to him throwing a pick. It wasn't, you know, in the pick itself, you know, the, when I saw it, it, it was, it was strictly pressure. He, uh, the defense pretty much got in his face and he made a th- he made a terrible pass he could have thrown it out of bounds and had another play but he wanted to rush it he wanted to rush it down he wanted to press the ball down the field and that's pretty much what happened so a good game on Auburn stand uh, standpoint offensively they might have let a, left a little bit to be desired but again I still I still feel that they were the better team. And also, shout out to Sal, uh, Sal Cornella from Auburn, too, also pulling down a touchdown from Jason Stidham as well. Uh, other scores we got over the weekend, we got USC beating up on UNLV. That's the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, y'all. 43-21. to uh, Stephen F. Austin University, they lost to Mississippi State in another blowout, 63-6. to And again, you know, Mississippi State scheduled a cupcake D2 opponent. So not to make not too much to take away from that win. We'll worry about them in subsequent weeks. Uh, another big time game, though. Probably, yeah, the last big time game I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about tonight was Notre Dame versus Michigan. Now Notre Dame was able to come out on top, 24 to 17. Already kind of already putting uh, your boy Jim, uh, so, yeah, Jim Harbaugh 
on the uh, the the uh, the hot seat already. You already got fans and just college football people in general saying it wasn't a good look. But in terms of stats, uh, Notre Dame's quarterback Brandon Winbush went 12 for 22, 170 yards and a touchdown. But he threw for an interception as well. Uh, he also contributed with 59 yards on the ground. Now, in terms of rushing overall, uh, Jafar Armstrong only had 35 uh, yards in total, but was able to provide the team with two touchdowns, so definitely helping out. And then uh, Prince Finky, Fink, uh, Finky, excuse me, he had three catches, 55 yards, and a touchdown. And in terms of defense, uh, Khalid Kareem led the way. The defensive end for Notre Dame, he had seven tackles and two sacks, and he was a defensive player of the week for the first week of the season. So uh, big up to him. Kudos to him. Now, moving on to Michigan, uh, their quarterback, Shea Patterson, played. He didn't play so well. He played decently. He went 20 or 30, 227 yards and an interception. Now, in terms of running the ball, Caron Higdon uh, led the way, 72 yards and a touchdown. In terms of receiving, uh, Nico Collins led the way with three, three receptions and 66 yards. So, tough sledding for Michigan. Uh, they only were able to get of course 17 points and uh it, again um the question now is for the past years they've had solid defenses we definitely know that they we know who they've provided for the draft Mo most recently jabril peppers on the defensive side of the ball but it looks like the past couple years they've had they've been having trouble scoring at least michigan we're talking about michigan now so um i don't know what to take too much from this game uh, other than that maybe notre dame is is somewhat legit of course they have a full season to go and maybe michigan wasn't as good as they as we thought they were there was a lot of hype going into this year of course for the jim harbaugh factor and he also brought in Shea Patterson from Ole Miss. He's supposed to be one of the best quarterbacks in college football. Uh, obviously, it looks like that, that didn't happen. <laughs> so moving on, we got a few more scores. Uh, we got Oregon coming out on top. My boys, the Ducks, coming out on top against Bowling Green, 54-28. to Herbert didn't do that bad. The defense might have some questions on the secondary, uh, but overall, I liked what I saw offensively. We, we're gonna have we're gonna have a few running backs uh, taking up the load this year. It looked, I saw seven at least carry the ball, but uh, they'll probably cut down to at least three three real uh, three real bat three real you know workhorses. Uh, Tony Brooks James is gonna pro definitely be one of those guys. So look out for that. And uh, Justin Herbert five touchdowns. Brilliant game on his part. Number wise, completion and, and uh, I'm sorry, completion and attempt wise, it wasn't perfect. But again, five touchdowns, you got to give them that. And we got Louisville. They got blown out by uh, Bama 51 to 14. So it looks like it doesn't matter quarterback situation or not. Alabama still a, still a favorite to be in the championship game, no matter what you say. And the final two games we got is LSU beat Miami 33-17. to And this game's pretty funny because right before the game, Miami started to jaw jack and wanted to get in LSU's face. And, you know, you know how that goes, you know. And, um... Miami being the ranked team, they take a big L, 33 to 17, and it's just funny. Like I said, you know, so much was made from Miami last year. They wanted to tell it the world they was back. It was the U. They brought out the chains, the turnover chain, and all that. Okay, and they got beat. And that's how they start off the season. And to wrap everything up with college football, the state of Florida, the Sunshine State, y'all just going to have to keep taking nails this first week of college football. The last game of this week, uh, technically, it'll be, I guess they would count it for this week. But tonight, uh, Virginia Tech and Florida State, uh, 
had their had their opener today. This was uh, Willie Taggart, uh, the coach of Florida State. This was his first game. He's previously he previously coached at Oregon last year, so I'm a little bit bitter about him. He kind of left us high and dry, and then had the nerve to try to take some of our recruits. So um, I'm glad he fell flat on his face. The night as a 19th uh, ranked team in the nation, they looked terrible tonight. They lost 24 to three to Virginia Tech, who's currently uh, 20th. But you know with this week and all the losses that that have taken place, they're likely to move up. I don't know. I'm not too sure how far, but they're probably going to move up with this win. And it's good to see justice served. I'm not too sure. Uh, I definitely had, um, you know, was definitely rooting for Willie Taggart when he was a coach here at Oregon or the coach at Oregon uh, that last year. But uh, you know, looking at him now and looking at looking at how they, you know. How they played, and I did see highlights of this game, and they looked to be all they looked to be all out of sorts. I don't know uh, what they got going on. I did see some of their offensive linemen uh, practice, at least uh, through uh, you know just the internet and everything like that, YouTube, uh, you know, campus specials and stuff like that. And I'll be one. I'll be the first to tell you that old line did not look solid at all coming into this year. So they, Florida State, definitely have some problems. So I, hopefully they get it together. Me personally, I think it's it's karma because Willie Tiger tried to cheat Oregon. So that's what he get. I hope he loses. So we're gonna take a quick break, y'all. We come back. We're gonna talk some uh, NFL. We got one more divisional preview to talk about. Uh, we're gonna be going over the AFC South, and of course, I gotta address the monkey in the room or the elephant in the room, excuse me, uh, Khalil Mack. So we'll be right back, y'all. Hey, ladies and gents, we are back, and I got some uh, football news for y'all. Yeah, you know, if you guys are any fans of the league like I am, you probably know, probably know about this. So this isn't really news. I'm just kind of just going to put my opinion into it. And I'm not going to spend too much time really into it because you know what? Life fucking goes on. This is how it goes, you know. But um, the Raiders over the weekend, yeah, yesterday to be more precise, Sunday, I found about about Sunday morning. Yes, about Sunday morning, the Raiders traded Khalil Mack to Chicago to Chicago to the Chicago Bears for two first round draft picks. They also traded a third round pick along with him, or I believe a second round pick along with him, which I thought was even more egregious. You know, I thought that was adding insult to injury. But you know what? The Raiders wanted to be cheap. Uh, they wanted to spend a thousand bucks. For an old a head coach they already had, and they pretty much knew their ceiling with him. Don't get me wrong. Um, I don't. Not to say that they, he could have he he couldn't have taken to the Raiders. He couldn't have taken to the Raiders. To, couldn't have taken the Raiders to a Super Bowl during his tenure back in the early two thousands. But the highest he got was the divisional championship game. You know so. We already knew what he was get. We was getting ourselves into by hiring the man. No, I'm not a fan of all of the changes. Um, I definitely wasn't a fan of bringing in Jordy Nelson and getting rid of Michael Crabtree. I thought that was that's gonna bite us more than well. You know what? Well, that's gonna hurt us just as much as Khalil Mack, to be honest. Because I, I don't. I, you know what? Fuck likability. Fuck if John Gruden. You know, I don't know what his deal was. With Trayton, 
Michael Crabtree, oh, he didn't fit the mold. You know what? Fuck all that. You know, it's not about that. It's not about how you get along with somebody or how you can tell somebody what to do. And I get it. You know, this is what makes a Patriot success. But you're not the Patriots. I'm sorry. John Smith is not the play call that Bill Belichick is. So I think he needs to just let that shit go. You know, obviously, he's maybe, and I don't know what, what scouting book he's been reading, but I think he got it wrong this time around. I was happy when he signed the contract. And don't get me wrong, like, he seems to really be an earnest guy. He seems to really want to turn the team around, but he, he seems so steadfast and wanting to do it his way. And I don't think his way works in, 25, in 2018. It might have worked in 2001, 2002. It doesn't work in 2018. Bringing in the old-ass Jordy Nelson is not going to help us. Letting go of Khalil Mack doesn't help us right now. Sure, we have two first-round draft picks, but unless we super suck next year, which we might now, uh, having two first-rounders might, well, you know, even if we had a decent year, two first-round picks would help. But still, not at the, not at the, not at, you know, not at the risk of losing your best defensive player, no. So, um, I thought it was a dumb decision, but you know what? We'll be moving to Vegas soon. Let's see what happens. You know, um, the one thing I can say is I'm going to be still be a fan. It just, you know, that's just, this is all part of liking the team. You know, coaches come, coaches go. They all have their way of running the team. And uh, this is the way that John Gruden wants to run it. I'm kind of mad at the organization because, you know, again, this is this is pretty much not necessarily a, a John Gruden situation, but I know uh, there's 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 owner uh, there's management and ownership that didn't want to shell out the cash, you know, and I I find it highly crazy that we would shell out a hundred thousand a hundred million dollars, excuse me, to a coach that hasn't been around in almost a decade. And we didn't want to, you know, invest and put some money into a player that won defensive player of the year in two different positions. That's outrageous to me. But, you know, um, that's the decision that ownership wanted to make. And as a fan, I'm not going to I'm not going to just jump in and move around teams. That's not how I do things. So y'all can turn around and be a cheese fan or a Niner fan or whatever have you. I'm not. Um, I just, I'm very mad at the, at the, at, at what we decided to do Sunday morning. I thought that was a pretty dumb decision, but like I said, life goes on and let's just see how the season plays out. Anyways, we have one last divisional preview to go through y'all. We're going to go over the AFC South tonight. Uh, the season should be starting, uh, this week, if I'm not mistaken. So we got everything right just on time. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with myself despite what's been going on. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, last year in terms of standings, the Jags finished out on top 10 and six overall, uh, but they were able to get to the AFC championship. They did beat the, the Steelers in the divisional round, uh, but they did lose to the Patriots and it was a little bit, it was actually controversial. So, you know, I give them a lot of respect. Um, you know, 10 and six, isn't the greatest record, but you know, it's what they were able to do in the playoffs. They were able to get within a couple plays and without, you know, the refs, you know, interference, they probably would have 
gotten an upset versus the Patriots. You never know. Uh, but coming in at second, we got the Titans at nine and seven. And bringing up the rear, we both have the Colts and the Texans. They both finished four and twelve. Uh, the Texans, they had some life with them uh, going into maybe week five or something like that. Uh, Deshaun Watson went out. And that was pretty much it for them. Uh, and they're trying to get back that excitement and everything like that that they had that first few weeks with uh, with the shine. And in terms of the Colts, again, it was another year that they missed Andrew Luck. Um, in my opinion, the the ownership hasn't really done a whole lot for him. They haven't really brought a whole lot of offensive line protection for him. And they haven't done a whole lot to make sure that he's safe and protected. So... I'm not too sure where that team is at in terms of where they're going or anything like that. Um, but let's get into some let's let's talk a little bit more about the division. Um, Jacksonville is returning its entire culture staff, and of course, Leonard Fournette, one of the best young running backs to the league. They also got TJ Yeldon right behind them, so they have a good uh, one-two punch to their run of the ball. Now they also have the second best defense in the league, and we all know that Jalen Ramsey is in that secondary. He's one of the best ball hawks in the league as of now. And my big thing right now would be for them. Uh, their wideout situation. Marquise Lee has suffered a season-ending uh, injury to his knee, and he's officially been placed on IR. That leaves their number one standout uh, to be Dante Moncrief, who hasn't really stood out in the last few years. Uh, he's been around. Uh, he's floated at least, well, he's been on the Colts, um, but again, I think last year he got like at least 400 yards receiving, so not, you know, not a whole lot to write home about, and they do have Austin Safarian Jenkins at tight end, but again, um, this is a team that's going to really have to rely upon their running game and their defense. Uh, don't get me wrong, Blake Bortles is going to have to come along too, but it would have been a whole lot easier if he would have had, you know, s- some some receivers to throw the ball to. He has some very questionable ones right now, so... Um, We'll move on from them. Let's talk a little bit about Houston real quick. Now, Houston added a, 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 a little bit of everybody. They added Tyron Matthew, uh, safety. They also had another safety, Justin Reed. They also added cornerback Aaron Colvin and wide receiver Sammy Coates. Now, they already have the, be- the, pa- the best pass rushing duo in the league with T.J. Watt and Javion Clowney, but they did finish last year. Uh, they finished. They did finish last last in interceptions last year. They also bring like bring him back, like I said, Deshaun Watson. He should be healthy by game one of this this uh, this year. So, you know, look for them to definitely improve. We'll get into my favorites and my dark horses in just a second. Now, let's move on to the Colts. Uh, they did add some O line help, uh, some O offensive line help. Uh, they added two guards, Brandon Smith and Quentin Nelson. They also added the OG Matt Lawson along the off- offensive line. So, look for Andrew Luck to be a little bit more protected. They didn't really add so much in terms of defense or anything else in the in the skill department. They, in terms of receivers and running backs. So still a lot of questions there. Now in terms of Tennessee, they added a a defensive tackle, Benny Logan. They also added cornerback, Malcolm Butler. They also added running back, Deion Lewis. They're in a situation though as well, just like Jacksonville, where they do have questionable wide receivers. Um, You know, they don't really have anybody that stands out. They do have Corey Davis. Now he only had about, about the, about, 
400 yards last year receiving as well. So, again, nothing a whole lot to write, write home about, but he's going to pretty much be the number one receiver. They still got Delaney Walker, who's a at least an 11 or even 12-year vet at this point. So, I'm not too sure how much he has going on. And their running game, they did add Deion Lewis. So, what I will say to it is they have depth. They'll be able to maybe have a running back by committee situation this year. Their defense is going to be, again, pretty solid. They have a pretty good defensive line. And their secondary with Malcolm Butler, with the addition of Malcolm Butler, should be should be decent. I mean, I, so they should come up. They should come up a little bit. But in terms of my favorite this year, you know, I know the consistent pick around the, anybody else around the league is going to proudly tell you Jacksonville. I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go against the grain. I'm gonna go against the. I'm gonna completely turn it around. Turn this motherfucker around. I'm gonna go with Houston, and the reason why is because I. Don't get me wrong. I I I like consistency. I like the consistency that Jacksonville is gonna be coming into the season with. They're gonna have their top running back coming back. Um, they're gonna have their their entire coaching staff, like I said, coming back. Of course, they have Blake Morals. My question is, again, and I'm, I'm going to be a stickler for this. I do, tr- I do think that defense is good, but I'm not trusting Blake Bortles as a quarterback, especially because he doesn't have anybody necessarily to throw the ball to. Now, unless Dante Moncrief and Austin Safarian Jenkins, the two guys that I do know about, just step up out of the woodwork and just handle their business. I don't know how great Blake Bortles is, and I and I would hate to see him regress. And I think it's possible, being the fact that he does not have a great cast of people to throw the ball to. So with that being said, I'm going to go with Houston. Houston already had a great wide receiver cast. They already had... Um, Excuse me. They had Sammy Coates. Uh, they got. They added Sammy Coates. They added Will. They have Will Fuller. They have a dope tight end. I, I think offensively they can keep. They can. They can score points. I think they can outscore Jacksonville. Um, I. I don't think Tennessee can. So I pretty much have Tennessee as my dark horse. Actually, no, no. No, I'll still I still have Jacksonville as my as my dark horse. I think Jacksonville can do just enough to, like I said, to be an outside choice for me. It's it's almost like a a, a no brainer. I, I think, in my opinion, because of the pass rush, I gotta give uh, Houston the better defense. I trust them. I trust them on all three levels. They added and they added Tyron Matthew. They added two safeties. They actually they added three uh, members to the secondary all together. They're looking to improve there. Like I said, they finished last. They finished last interceptions, but they were able to get to that quarterback. So if they're able to get to that quarterback, there's no telling what they're able to do if they're able to get interceptions too. I gotta go with. I gotta go with Houston again. They. They might not have the dominant running back, but again, I think they're more balanced on offense. They'll have way more weapons to throw the ball to in terms of Deshaun Watson. I think Deshaun Watson's a better quarterback. I'm going to have to side with Houston in one of the AFC South. I got Jacksonville coming in as a second or a dark horse only because, like I said, they have consistency across the board. But those receivers and Blake Borders, their quarterback, I don't trust them. I don't trust those two. As far as Tennessee, I, I got them as a sleeper. Um, there are never I, I I like Marcus Mariota. 
I'm not too sure how the receivers around him are going to show up around him this year. He can do a lot with the ball. He can still run the ball a little bit. They have a running back system in place. They added Deion Lewis. That should be some hopefully some more fresh legs. Defensively, they're solid, um, especially in that secondary. So I think they challenge. I don't necessarily say they they necessarily come out on, on top and dominate but uh i i don't see why not they go nine and seven again and finish third or possibly second but at least challenge this year and again uh the colts there's not too much to say that outside of the offensive lineman that they added they really didn't add too much so hopefully for them you know at least andrew luck can stay up right that's all i can say for them all right, yo, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some baseball. We're going to move right along. We're going to talk some scores uh, that happened tonight, and then we're going to go over the standings. We're going to go over the standings for the last couple of games of the week, uh, for the season, excuse me, and then we're going to talk about the wild card as well. So we'll be right back, y'all. <laughs> All right, y'all, we are back, and we're going to go over tonight's baseball scores. We're also going to go over the standings and the wild card as well. As you may or may not know, the MLB season is coming to an end. So let's get right into it. Uh, the Red Sox beat the Braves today, 8-2. The Cars lose to the Nationals, 3-4. The Marlins beat the Phillies, 3-1. The Reds lose to the Pirates, uh, 1-4. Five. The Cubs beat the. I'm sorry. The Cubs lose to the Brewers today, uh, three to four. The Tigers lost to the White Sox, two to four. The Astros beat the Twins, four to one. The Giants beat the Rockies, eight to nine. My A's beat the Yankees, six to three. The Royals beat the Indians, five to one. The Rays beat the Blue Jays, seven to one. The Angels beat the Rangers. 3 to 1. The Mets score upset against the Dodgers 4 to 2, although it really means nothing at this point in the season. The Padres beat the Diamondbacks 6 to 2, and the Orioles lose to the Mariners 2 to 1. Now, in terms of the standings, we're going to go through the uh, the American League real quick, starting with the American League East. The Red Sox are on top, 95 and 44, 5 and 5 in their last 10. They are eight and a half games up on the Yankees. I think it's time to give them that magic number. They pretty much got this division on lock. At number two, like I said, you got the Yankees. The Yankees eight and a half games back at 86 and 52. They've also gone five and five in their last 10. I think the, the margin, I think the, the, the margin is a little bit too far for the Red Sox. I think, like I said, they got it. In terms of the third place, we got uh, Ray, the Rays here, Tampa Bay, 74 and 63. Then we have the Blue Jays at four, 62 and 75. And bringing up the bottom, we got the Orioles, 40 and 98. Off to the Central Division, we got the Indians on top, 77 and 60. They've gone four and 60 in the last 10. They've had a, a rough couple of weeks, but they are significantly, they have a significant lead on the Twins, who are at second, 63 and 74. I pretty much think they got the, they got this division sewn up. As far as number three goes, we got the uh, White Sox at fifty six and eighty three, and the Royals they're at forty six and ninety one. Now off to the wild wild Western Division, we got the Astros on top. 
85 and 53. They've gone 73 in their last 10. But we have my my A's. They're right up on their heels. 83 and 56. Two and a half games back. They've gone 6 and 4 in their last 10. If there's any team that can close a two and a half game gap, it has to be the A's. Now, this is going to be important because, you know, we got wild card seeding to talk about as well. So we'll get to that in just a second. And number three, we got the Mariners, 77 and 61. They're eight games back. They're pretty much out of the race. They've gone five and five in their last 10. I don't see it happening for them. They're out of it. The Angels, 67 and 71. They're at fourth and at fifth. We know these these guys are out of it. The Rangers, 60 and 78. Now, as far as the wild card goes, the top three teams in line for that are the Yankees and the A's, who are currently having their little series right now. Basically a preview because the Mariners, they're pretty much out of it. Like I said, they're at 77 and 61. I don't think they're catching up with the A's. They're definitely not catching up with the Yankees. So, you know, that's pretty much it in terms of your playoffs, in terms of, you know, where your what your playoff situation is looking at. As of today, uh it would be the Red Sox, it would be the Astros and the Indians, and then you'll have your wild card, the A's and the Yankees pretty much. And the winner of this series, I think, will pretty much determine who wins that playoff game. So I'm hoping we are able to come out on top. Now off to the NL. Now in terms of the Eastern Division, we got the Braves on top, seventy-six to sixty-one. They've gone four and six in their last ten. I uh, now their second uh, second place team are the Phillies. They're at seventy-two and sixty-five. They've gone three and seven in their last ten. They're already four games back. I don't know if they catch up the pace, catch up to the pace. Um, I still got the Braves winning this division. The Nationals are at three, at 69 and 69. They're at 500, but they're pretty much out of it unless a miracle happens. I And I'm not the type to believe in sports miracles per se. Now, they happen every now and again, but not this time, not this time. Now, in terms of the Mets, they're at 62 and 75. They're eliminated, of course. And then we at the, at the bottom, at last place, we got the Marlins at 55 and 83. Off to the Central Division, where we got the, the Cubs, the other Chicago team on on top, 81 to 56. They've gone seven and five in the last ten. Now the Brewers, they've been hot. They've been pretty hot all summer. They've been trying to break through and get to their first playoff berth in 11 years. They might just do that. They'll have to go through a wild card, in my opinion, to get it, though. They're currently at four games back, but they've gone 7-3 in their last 10. That's a good trajectory. They've been pretty hot in the last couple of weeks. They're only three games. Well, they're four games back, so there's no real there's no real way to tell. But, again, I still got the Cubs coming out on top, but I definitely got them getting that first wild card spot in terms of the Brewers. Now, in terms of the third-place team, we got the Cards at 76-62. and 62. They're five-and-a-half games back. They've gone five-and-five five in their last ten. Now, you know, if the season were to end today, I would just – it would be ugly. It would be, in it, it would be an NL Central matchup for the wild card you know, just because of records right now, the cards are really up there. We got a couple 70, 75, 76 win teams. It's a little bit hard to say for the NL wild card right now. But let's get through the Central real quick. We got the Pirates bringing up 
the fourth place spot. They were at 67 and 71, and the Reds were at last place, 59 and 79. Now off to the National League West, we got the Rockies on top. Like I said for tonight, they're at 75 and 62. They've gone five and five in their last ten, so they're about even. There's no real way to determine where they go from here at this point. Uh, we have the Dodgers. They're a half game back, but they're eight and two in their last ten. They've been pretty hot, so there's no reason to say why they couldn't overtake the next spot, and which is why it just makes even more craziness in in the uh, wild card race. So at the third place spot, we got the Diamondbacks at 74 and 64. They're they're one and a half game back from the Rockies, and they're also three and seven in the last ten. They probably won't catch up to the eventual eventual winner. But you never know. They could find themselves in the in the wild card. They're not too many games back. And then at the bottom, bring up the two bottom spots. We got the Giants at 68, excuse me, 68 and 71. And then we got the Padres at 55 and 85. Again, like I said, with the wild card, uh, at number one, of course, we have the Brewers. At two, we have the Cardinals. But again, that's just for tonight. There's no telling what tomorrow brings. And then at third, we have the Dodgers. Uh, they're at 65 and 63. There's a lot of 60. There's a lot of 75. Like I said, there's a few 75, 76 win teams. There's no, and like they're right up on each other. Uh, like I said, in the NL West, it could be, it's a three team, it's a, basically a three team race in the NL West. Uh, in the NL Central, it's a two team race, uh, in my opinion. But those Brewers, they're pretty hot. Again, but again, you know, the Cubs have somewhat of space. They, I don't think they have a met. They're good enough to have a magic number yet, but I think they have enough space to win it. But again, that wild card is going to be pretty, pretty hard to pretty hard to pick right now. But as of now, uh, we're looking at a Brewers cards matchup for the wild card NL Central matchup. So uh, the Cubs better look out because they're not going to get rid of these guys anytime soon. All right, y'all, we're going to take one last break, and when we come back, I'm going to be reviewing one of my favorite Westerns of all time, Young Guns. If you don't know anything about that, imagine the Golden State Warriors of of the late 1980s, early 90s, at least in terms of Hollywood actors. We got an all-star cast here we're going to be talking about, and it's a pretty decent movie in my opinion. We'll get into it in just a second. All right, y'all. All right, y'all, so we are back. We're going to finish this off for tonight, and we're going to be talking about not only one of my favorite cowboy westerns, but one of my one of my more favorite movies of all time. I don't like this as much as The Mask, but it's definitely up there. This came out in 1988, and I'm talking about The Young Guns. Now, like I said before I took the break, this is basically like the, the Golden State Warriors of acting lineups, at least for the late 90s, I mean late 80s, early 90s. We got Emilio Estevez starting, starting as Billy the Kid. We got his brother Charlie Sheen starting Dick Brewer. We got Keith Sutherland starting as Doc Spurlock and your boy Lou Donald Phillips as Chavez E. Chavez. We also got Mount rounding out the main cast, Dermot Moronoy, who played Dirty Steve. We got Casey Semensko who plays Charlie Boudreaux and Terrence Stamp. OG British actor, we all we've seen him. You've seen him in a couple places like the Haunted Mansion and stuff like that with Eddie Murphy. Couple commercials recently. He plays Mr. John Tunsil. Now I like this movie because, and I like movies like this because they have some historical backstory. I'm a sucker for historical 
well, any type of movie with some type of historical background is based off of it. I don't care if it's just sort of based off of it or you basically, you know, making the whole movie word, you know, you know, scene for scene. This is how it happened. Pretty much. I love I'm a sucker for these type of movies. I'm a low key bookworm. I live for this. Now, some backstory about this movie. This movie, now, of course, like I said, it doesn't do this for detail for detail, but it basically is a, it's, it's the story of the Lincoln County, real life Lincoln County regulators in New Mexico. Now they formed around 1876 and, uh, they formed basically as a group of men, they already, uh, had a, had a reputation of killing horse thieves in the area. Uh, they, oh, and one of their main, uh, missions were, ca- that were carried out was, uh, July the 18th in 1876. They basically broke into the police station and killed a local horse thief by the name of Jesus Largo. Now the or- original members of the group were Charlie Baudray, Doc Sherlock, Frank and George Cole, two brothers and Abe Saunders. Now, Billy the Kid didn't join up with them until about the spring of that same year, and he worked with Charlie and Doc on their uh, cheese on, on a cheese factory. So these guys now, like I said, it, there were some uh, differences in the movie. Uh, the movie pretty much showed all these guys as farmhands, but obviously, like I, like I just said, uh, Charlie and Doc, two of the main characters you'll see in the movie, they already had their own business going in. In, in real life, they had a, their own business going. And I and I get why Hollywood, you know, makes those differences, you know, because it's, it's a lot. It's a lot easier to tell the story that way. So I I think even without being, you know, directly, you know, shot for shot, a remake of actually, you know, of all the events that happened, I still thought it told a good story. But let me get, you know, let me get some more. Let me give you you guys some more backstory and just, of, you know, what we're dealing with here. Um, this was the wild, wild west. And, you know, you might have heard about the Oregon Trail and certain, you know, towns like Tombstone. And you heard about those places, but it, it got over. It got down, you know, it's got it got hectic all over the place in the great western fronts here. Now, uh Billy, Billy the Kid, the main, the main guy from the story, uh, the main guy from history that history does talk about. Uh, he found his way to the town, like I said, uh Lincoln County around the same time, 1876, around the same time the group is self-formed. Um, and he also found work with a local merchant, uh, known as John, I mean local merchant uh john tunsil who's like i also said was a main character in the movie as well and john tunsil also uh hired uh some of his friends that he was already working with with the regulators now they hired he hired them as hired guns why well at the time the lincoln county the city and the, the county itself was dominated by two Irish merchants by the name of Dolan and L.G. Murphy. They will go on and they will go on to open their own store called the Mur- uh, the Murphy Dolan store, basically called the house. And they also made up their own bank. They eventually would have uh, strong. They would garner strong political connections with uh, the sheriff of the town, William J. Brady, who was also in the movie as well. You kind of see that in the movie as well. And although the movie kind of gives you a different story, romanticizes certain events, you still get the main characters in history. James Dolan was an actual, I'm sorry, yeah, James Dolan was an actual human being. So was L.G. Murphy. So you get those characters, you kind of get who they were. You already know their connections. That's 
that's still, you know, talked about in the movie. And I think and I give the movie kudos for doing that. Now, they were also friends with the chief justice of New Mexico, Samuel Axtell, and also uh, friends with the attorney general, um, excuse me, the attorney general, Thomas Cantrone. Now, these guys, these three guys, the sheriff, the chief justice and the attorney general, they formed the Santa Fe ring, which is pretty much, in my opinion, uh, when you if you ever look into the history of it, you'll figure out it's pretty much your first, you know, your first examples of pretty much organized crime, of organized crime syndicate. Now, Kit Catrone, the attorney general, owned about three million dollars. I'm sorry, three million acres of land in the area. Now, John Tunsil, uh, the main character in the movie, he's going to be depicted as an older man, uh, pretty much a. Uh, pretty much a a father figure to the guys now he was only in real life he was only about i would say about 10 years older than everybody else everybody else was about in their early to mid 20s uh actually actually i would say late late teens actually uh billy the kid was about 18 years old when he joined the first group of regulators now um the other guys ranged between 18 19 about 21 as well tunsil on the other hand he's late 20s i think uh i want to say yeah he about 27 when he was at when he was eventually killed um but like I said, they had him uh, depicted by an elder, elder man in the movie, Terrence Stamp. And I thought that was okay. Again, all about giving us a story. You know, not so much about telling us exactly what happened in history. Again, we got to understand this is a movie and they want to entertain us. So, again, this, the story itself made sense. Um, even with John Tunsil being played by an elder man, you pretty much get the sense of there was a connection between, the, you know, the guys who eventually became the regulators and John Tunsil. You know, they were in real life. They already worked for him. They were uh, allies. Um, like I said, John Tunsil had hired a lot of those guys for protection because Jane, basically what had happened was, um, when John Tunsil of English uh, English descent, he moved uh, basically he moved to the area of Lincoln County area in about 1876. Around the same time, all this stuff started happening. So this is a pretty amazing how this all happened within a relatively short amount of time. Now, like I said, he moved to the county in about 1876, and he formed an alliance with a lawyer named uh, Alexander McQueen, who's also depicted in the movie as well, and John Chisholm, who's not. Now Tunsil would eventually buy. A ranch 30 miles outside of the town of Lincoln and he became a cattleman now in Lincoln he also set up his own store and his own bank now Tunsil became an instant rival now now what I mean by this is not just he's competing no he actually was pushing Murphy and Dolan into bankruptcy um, and this eventually would affect the Attorney General as well because the Attorney General had invested a lot of his money into who Murphy and Dolan so Dolan and Murphy would eventually, like I said, they hired members of the Jesse Evans gang to go basically go, you know, to go take him out. And um, when when they did that, the Jep, the Dep, uh, the mayor, not the, I'm sorry, not the mayor, but the sheriff, he deputized those guys. He pretty much deputized gang members to go pretty much take out the competition. And that's pretty much what they did there. Um, Sheriff Brady sent a posse over there and uh, they wanted to take some horses. Uh, basically, what they called themselves doing was there was a they put out a suit against Alexander McQueen and uh, they wanted to, to take some horses as part of the suit. 
But what happened was there was a there wasn't a skirmish, but the two crews, meaning the regulators that were sent to protect Tunsil and the James Evan gang guys, basically known they were also known as the boys. Um they basically was a showdown and the two groups, they kind of split up and eventually the, the group that, uh, the bigger group, uh, was able, or the bigger group, meaning the Jesse Evans gang was able to separate and assassinate John Tussle. Now this, this set off a firecracker, uh, in the whole, the whole town, the County, etc. Now, after this, Billy, the kid and the other members of the regulators, including, uh, Charlie Dick, um, they were all, they were all deputized, which means they were given, uh, strict orders from the justice of the peace at the time, uh, to carry out arrest of the people who were involved in the murder. Now, the funny thing about it was in the movie, everything was pretty much a shootout. Every confrontation was a shootout and the bodies were flying this, that, and the other, uh, Charlie Sheen's character, Dick Brewer ends up dying in a second battle with Buckshot, uh, Bill Rogers. Now, with that being said in real life, actually a lot more arrests were made. Uh, the, the regulators were able to, you know, really actually do a, do a thorough job and kind of getting all the people, or well, at least the main people involved arrested. Now, of course, this was going to cause more drama, more beef. And eventually some of the, there were some gun battles. Uh, more notably with uh, one of the most dangerous gunmen, like I mentioned before, Buck Rogers. With that being said, um, Billy the Kid, as much, and this is funny about history and how literature and how they all play a hand, and even Hollywood eventually. And because historically, Billy the Kid wasn't actually, wasn't actually the biggest, baddest shooter in the squad. That went to Doc Spurlock and the Cole brothers. Um, there's also historical evidence from not only people involved, but the people in the town as well affiliated, uh, that he wasn't necessarily out there trying to be the leader. Uh, the original leader was Dick uh, Brewer, who was, um, who was also named the town's constable. So he had a pretty deep political standing even at that time, we're talking about young men, 21, 22, even some going into their teens. So, uh, again, the, it's funny. It's funny how, you know, Hollywood and, you know, literature, they played up Billy the Kid to be this master gunman, this leader, this criminal uh, under, you know, this criminal mastermind. But in all reality, he was pretty much a, a field hand, a rancher. Who, you know, happened to be around those guys. He learned how to shoot, learned how to carry himself. But again, you know, taking away reality and comparing reality to the movie, I will tell you this. I still enjoy what the movie showed me. Uh, the movie showed showed us the exactly, like I said, they, they got the characters down. Uh, they mentioned all the characters, pretty much everybody that was involved. Of course, we didn't have an Abe Saunders in the movie or the Cole brothers, but uh, Chavez, Chavez was represented. Dick Brewer, the leader, was represented, although he was never killed in real life. He was able to get get away in the movie. They showed him being killed. You know, Charlie Sheen's character being killed. But I think that's all part of, you know, the, the, the Hollywood aspect of it. Um, the main thing that the movie got right which I get, will always give it credit for, was the beef part. You understood exactly why they were beefing. You understood the um, 
the just the the rivalry that the two groups had being Tunsil's regulators and the Dolan uh the Dolan company. Now there was also the the Irish British beef there too. That that was also said. Emilio Estevez talked about it at various times in the movie, especially near the end. He was breaking it down. He's like, man, this is not just some regular cattle hand beef. No, this is gold. This goes back to Ireland and England. You know, they're bringing that that stuff over here. This stuff hasn't changed. He's basically telling it like it is. And I want the governor to know what's going on. And like I said, this was one of your first cases of a real legit crime syndicate. You're uh, the governor of New Mexico at the time. He might have he might have known about it. It couldn't do anything about it. Or he just was probably in on it himself. This was this was some this was a lot of. A corruption to its core and the movie for what it's worth yes it glamorizes certain certain things it gave you a random peyote scene that you probably didn't need in all reality but you know what it hit it on point you understood what like i said i'm going to keep stressing it you understood what the beef was about you understood the players of the game and who was involved and you know pretty much what their uh their feelings were behind it and what their motives were and the motives in the movie, the motives matched what the motives, the motives in the movie matched the motives in real life. You know, it was at certain point in time, Billy, uh, AKA William Bonnie, he wanted to bring attention to the president of what was going on. He said that in the movie, the movie got that completely right. That was the whole point of these. It wasn't just to, you know, cowboys fighting each other, bang, bang and all that. No, it was about bringing awareness to to corruption and to political influence and stuff like that. Like I said, it was, a, you know, again, English, English, Irish beef. You know, uh, this is a beef that, you know, across the pond you know, raged for centuries and got bloody in the 60s and even, you know, at certain times, even recently in our known history, they brought that over here and they were going at each other in the wild, wild west. So I like stuff that that has some type of historical reference. I fuss with the movie on IMDb. It's going to tell you it's a 6.9. I disagree. I'm giving it an eight. There were some there were some, of uh, course, there were some Hollywood additions. Sure, I'll give it that. But again, it got to the point in the movie. It addressed the essential themes of what was going on in the city at the time. Beef, corruption, money. All those things were addressed. Of course, William Bonnie, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, was over glamorized, as he's always been. But I think that's what adds to the legend of the story. That's what brings the attention to the story. And uh, and again, it's just an example even of today, how the media will play one character up and play one guy up and, and they do it today, just like with literature, you know. And again, before I let y'all go, again, any movie that has some historical revelance to it, I, t- I, if I, were, I take a chance. I take a chance on it. I give it an eight. I give it a solid B. I thought it was a good movie. One of my favorites. Real talk. All right, y'all, we're going to wrap it up for tonight. Tomorrow, we'll be back with the world on the street. We'll be having some official current events. We'll have some news for you guys. Um, And uh, whatever comes my way in terms of the news, we're definitely going to be reporting it. And we're also mm, no more. No previews, um, no conference previews for college football. We got through all those. No, no more divisional previews. Um, 
if anything, we'll just set up the games for the next for the next week. For the, for the first week, we'll be talking about those. We'll be previewing the first games of the NFL season. So come back tomorrow, y'all. You know it's going to be the same. No, maybe not the same time, but definitely the same place. This is never out of bounds, y'all. This is your man, El Jamal. Y'all enjoy your night. Peace out.